I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither, and let's call the whole thing off. Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Never Ready. Hey, <laughs> This is uh, Stephen Robles and we have a great topic today we're going to get to. But before we do, I wanted to say a word about Impact 360. It's an awesome organization that I've used their material personally, but they have great online courses and resources for those of you wanting to learn more about how to defend your faith and Christianity. They have a specific online course about worldview. A lot of what we talk about here on the Free Mind Podcast is about worldview, the Christian worldview, and and how we evaluate and reason with the things that we hear in culture and society. And so would encourage you to go to impact360.org and look at their online courses, especially this worldview course, which they have sessions on what is worldview and worldviews in conflict, understanding the Christian worldview, and how to engage in other worldviews that might disagree with the Christian worldview. And again, you can find a link to that in show notes, and you can even use the promo code. That's right. You can use the promo code FREEMIND, FREEMIND. to get, what is it? 20, $25 off. $25 man. off. That's a That's deal. That's a dizzle. <laughs> That's it. So yes, uh, I've used them personally and would really encourage you to go check out impact360.org. Well, go ahead and take it, brother. Yeah, Seth. man. Well, I, I want to start with a really, really controversial statement today. Mm. I'm going to go on record saying, "Well, is the Starbucks house blend has gone to pot?" Oh, oh my, my. that's huge. Is that the one you buy like in the store? You know, they don't. I don't think they sell they don't it sell it in that's the Starbucks right, anymore. They, Not anymore. Ever yeah. since then, I'm see. This is my theory. There's well, some. Let me get factory. my, tin, get my tinfoil hat. Hold on. <laughs> Got it on. Let's Listen, go. there is some yeah. factory. In the back of a Ma- Maxwell House factory. Oh, yikes. The lower low. Where they are storing <laughs> leftover house blend mm. from like five years ago. Oh. And they're doling it out to me through via Publix. <laughs> Seth. And I'm telling you, I'm sipping on it right now. Right, I am too. Now listen, my wife, she loved the house blend. Uh, it was my favorite. And we would I get it I swore by time. house blend. But when they said, I, I was a little suspicious because I went through the drive-thru. I said, can I have some house blend? And they said, oh, we don't do that anymore. And as a good establishment, you would think they would have a recommendation for something right. similar. Because I asked them, like, well, what right. should we get instead? They told me to get some Yukon, whatever. Not the same. <laughs> not the same. Not so I don't, have a, I don't even know what an alternative is. I mean, they're not is. in the same county. The problem is, <laughs> the problem is, they just said they don't do that anymore, yet you go to Publix. Right. I've seen them restock. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's my theory. House Blend was the hegemonic power. Oh, my goodness. They're divesting themselves of House Blend. Oh, my. And they are serving us the leftovers from this decrepit factory. I'm telling you, because this stuff tastes like swirl. And I'm drinking it. I even mix mm. it with French. You know, my go-to for years was French, French. and House Blend. That's right. And it was, I just called it Back to Basics every year. That was my basic <laughs> blend. And I, I'm That's lost it. right now. So uh, if you have any coffee recommendations, uh, can you please yeah. give us something good? <laughs> Leave us we... a five-star rating <laughs> and tell us what your coffee recommendation oh is. Coffee. What coffee bean you recommend to it's replace the huge. house blend? Yes, meritocracy has failed at Starbucks, and they are now serving us Yukon <laughs> Swill. <blend. laughs> I miss so, but that's not the topic for today. <laughs> that's not the topic for today. No, no. And maybe before we, I, you know, I'm, we're going to jump into the topic here in a little bit. But you actually, uh, we were just reading through the news news articles today. 
You brought up something interesting. I think it connects to last week's topic. Last week we were talking, well, we tried to talk. I I feel like it was a bit of a jumbled mess, but (laughs) there are some good nuggets in there you can mine out of the talk. So of our conversation. But I think, um, you know, we talked a little bit about postmodernism and its connection to critical theory. And then you brought this up, Stephen, that that you saw some kind of quote from the, is it Marvel, Captain Marvel? Brie Larson is the actress that plays Captain Marvel in the latest Captain Marvel movie. Again, it was a huge release, really popular in the culture. And she was recently at an award show. And made some comments about uh, movie critics. And so I was trying to find a real-world example where we might see critical theory or postmodernism in play. And so I think this kind of touches on that. Of course, the internet that we were just complaining about is failing us. Yes. If, if, listen, <laughs> if you are listening, Fios, please come. Rescue us. Rescue us today. Please. We need you. All right. I got it. All right. Here we go. So her comments, it's in a Variety article that we can comment. So these quotes are Brie Larson. Oh, my goodness. I'm taking another sip of this coffee. Mm. That wouldn't happen to be the house blend, would it? <laughs> so these comments are recorded in a Variety article. It was Brie Larson at a, an award ceremony. But she said, I don't want to hear what a white man has to say about A Wrinkle in Time, which is a movie starring... Oprah Winfrey, or she was behind the movie or something. Okay. I want to hear what a woman of color, a biracial woman, has to say about the film. I want to hear what teenagers think about the film. She did go on to say, (laughs) I'm not saying that I hate old white dudes. That was Brie Larson's quote. So she was trying to specify she's not hating on old white guys, that she wants to see more critics of color. But I think it's pretty telling, again, the quote saying, I don't want to hear what a white man has to say about that. And just that feel of... A white man does not cannot speak truth or is less validated in what he is saying in regards to this movie as opposed to someone else. Right. A person of color or a biracial person. And that underlying tone of there is an oppressive class and that person, I don't want to hear what they have to say. Whatever they have to say is less valid than an oppressed class. Right. So I thought that was help maybe bring it to a real world example. Yeah, for sure. That you might hear. Uh, in movies and culture and things like that. Yeah, for sure. And again, on a surface level, her comments, you might even be able to identify with them or you sympathize and you want to say, well, yeah. oh yeah, if there's just a bunch of old white dudes as movie critics, maybe we should get a person of color on that panel or that critics, whatever. And that there may be some truth to that as well. But again, yeah. it's that underlying tone and mentality that I think the critical theory that Neil talks about that we see kind of everywhere. And just spotting things that pointed out, I think, is yeah, for sure. Helpful. It seems to be a uh, a just a perfect example of the fruit right. of critical theory, where you know you're not you're more concerned about the things we would typically classify as less important, the external. So if you remember the kind of the categories, the canonical oppressor of Western civilization is the white male cisgender heterosexual Christian. Right. And so any of those categories you want to take and, and kind of look for the oppressed class or the, you know, mm-hmm. the class that's not represented. So it would be, you know, a female, you know. Ew. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, you, you know, just replace any of those categories. So you got the your sex, you got the um, color, you got the gender identity, right. the sexual orientation and the religious um, element. Right. And you look, your intersection 
nationality portion is where they intersect with, you know, now you have a black gay woman who's, you know, Buddhist and, you know, and you're, and you say, well, I want, I want to hear from that person. And then you, well, I'll, I'll one up you. I want to hear from a Chinese transgender male homosexual, um, pantheist, you know, and I'll and right. it, it well, kind of right. get into this never ending cycle of, um, who, who's lower on the intersectional totem pole. Right. And whereas I think the, the better, the better thing to aim for is I want to hear from the people who are really qualified as critics. Man. Yeah. Right. And come what may like, and, right. you know, I play basketball. So whenever I was trying to, you know, we were looking, we would help coach, like we would go with them, recruit, uh, look at, look at other players. The last thing we cared about was their intersectional qualities. We were looking for who's the best player, who's going to fit this team, who's going to help us. And that right. typically is referred to as a meritocracy. You're looking for the best um, and the problem is with critical theory, the, the part about, like you said, that's good, Stephen, is that there have been times in history in this nation, other nations all around mm-hmm. the world, different things where certain tribes, certain minority groups are pushed out and they're not allowed right. um, simply because of those features. And in cases like that, you want to remove that obstacle and say, man, if somebody's unfairly being pushed to the side because of these qualities, we need to remove that. That's wrong. And right. we need to let whoever's best come what may. And that's why I think if you go back to the the one we did with Neil, he actually says, in the case of critical theory or whatever, read broadly. And then he puts a picture and it's all black males. And he said, the reader may be tempted to think at this point, like, what do you, I, I just thought you said read broadly and here's all these black males. He said, it, if you're thinking like that, what you don't realize is that these, all these guys are at different points of the ideological spectrum. So you actually cover the whole spectrum of viewpoints on this given issue, yet they all intersection intersectionality-wise meet the same criteria. So right. in other words, the main thing you want to look for if you are looking for real diversity is diversity of ideology, diversity right. of thought. And then secondarily, you want to ask, man, are, are groups being disincluded because of any external features? And that's what Martin Luther King fought for is he mm. said, man— you want p- people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. We're doing the exact opposite of that now in the name of critical theory. Right. And that's a problem. And, and you point out the epistemological element as well in there. Which was? Which was. Basically, I think when we were talking about it, you said um, she seemed at some point in the article maybe to imply that these other people would have more insight into the nature right. exactly. yes. of, of the movie the the quality the yeah. beauty of the movie because of their um the way their boxes are ticked according to this intersectional right. s- intersectional scheme right so that's sort of the postmodern epistemology right um yeah which it was interesting in the last episode and maybe plays into this it's it's easy to take that stance like brie larson's stance on something like a movie critique right because there's not extremely high stakes but that's if you were going point. in for brain surgery hey. And your only choices were these 10 doctors who had 50 years of experience or 30 years of experience, but they're all old white dudes. Yep. And there was one who was a black woman who was maybe transgender, but she's only performed one brain surgery. Which would you prefer? Whose ability would you side on in that situation? Yeah. Would you take, you know, one of these old white dudes who's going to be operating on your brain or not? Yeah. Just because they're white, would you resist? Probably not. 
you would probably side on them because of their skill level and history and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, man, I think you're right about that for sure. So we're going to talk about arguing today. Hey. <laughs> on that <laughs> note. To, yes, yes. <laughs> well, and I think it's important too because last episode we talked a little bit about epistemology and how we know things and find truth. And argumentation is an important part of that. And not in the sense of just yelling at each other, but how we form a logical step to truth. Yeah. Know, and how we, how we discover that. Um, one of the things, William Lane Craig, he has a book, Reasonable Faith, and another book, On Guard, uh, which I actually used in a, in a class at a, a Bible college recently. He talks about arguing in a really level-headed way. William Lane Craig says, we can present a defense of the Christian faith without becoming defensive. We can present arguments for Christianity without becoming argumentative. And he, he goes on to say, when I talk in this book about arguments for the Christian faith, it's vital to understand that I don't mean quarreling. We should never quarrel with a non-believer about our faith. That only makes people mad and drives them away. I'll explain later. An argument in the philosophical sense is not a fight or a heated exchange, just a series of statements leading to a conclusion. And the last thing he says I thought was interesting. If you have good arguments in support of your faith, you're less apt to become quarrelsome or upset. I find that the better my arguments are, the less argumentative I am. The better my defense, the less defensive I am. If you have good reasons for what you believe and know, there's just no reason to get hot under the collar. Instead, you'll find yourself calm and confident when you're under attack because you know you have the answers. I think it's a great explanation of why you don't have to be argumentative and get heated, especially yeah. if you have good reasons, good arguments for what you believe. For sure. And I think, you know, what made me think about this topic a little bit, and uh, if I can find this meme, we'll make it our, <laughs> our graphic. But if I'm remembering correctly, it was something like somebody was either dragging someone away or punching someone. And it says, you know, we weren't called to um, win arguments. We were called to win people or, some, you know, sometimes it's the idea of, you know, we, don't, we can't argue people into the kingdom. We can only love them into the kingdom. Hmm. And I think it's what... What that's often, I think the idea of it and what's meant by it is probably good. Uh, and that is like, you're, you're never going to like win people over to your viewpoint by making them feel bad or look bad or just trying to win an argument. Making them look stupid or Right, dumb. yeah, or pulling rank on them or, you right. know, all that kind of stuff. But if you use that as a, as a, kind of a shield for ever engaging people in arguing, making arguments for the truth of Christianity, then you've misused it hmm. because it actually can be the loving thing to do to um, show people that Christianity is true. And how do you do that? Well, you use arguments. Right. And sometimes it's confrontational even, um, and we can talk more about that later, but I think the idea that we shouldn't ever get in arguments really throws you at odds with the scripture. And I think we pulled up a couple here that I'm going to have you read, Nerva, if you can, um, to pull up. There's an there's a interesting passage Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians that I love, and it talks about this very thing. 2 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 3. For although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolishing of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, 
So read that again now, one more time. From right there, yeah, from verse 3. I'm going to stop you. For although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Right. So in other words, you know, Paul here is saying we don't pick up machetes and Uzis and go, you know, try mm. to convert people to Christianity or get them to change their minds through that methodology. Keep going. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolishing of strongholds. Right. And so what is a stronghold? It's an idea system, mm. at which he gets into. So keep reading from there. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge so of God. we demolish what? Arguments. Right. So how do you demolish an argument? You get a better one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't shout at it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. You don't hit them with a <laughs> stick. And, um, you know, I think that idea that this is one part of spiritual warfare that um, we've kind of, in evangelical circles, not as a whole, but we've been tempted, I think, by there's an anti-intellectual stream that has run through evangelicalism that tends to make us think we don't need to deal with these ideas. And if we do, we just kind of shout our ideas louder. <laughs> right. Um, but you can see Paul here talking about the, the cognitive nature of parts of spiritual warfare. Mm, that's good. And so in order to deal with those arguments, you have, to, you have to pull them apart. You have to help people understand how are these raised against the knowledge of God and what do we do with them? Well, um, this is a uh, – I can't remember where I got this quote from. I want to say it was – J. Gresham Machen um, in the early 1900s, but he said, false ideas are the greatest obstacle to the reception of the gospel. Mm. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Under such circumstances, what God desires to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. So good. So in other words, if we let the, the thought patterns, the ideologies of the nation move in a direction, you might win a couple stragglers here and there, but you have, in essence, lost the battle. Mm. And I think that's what we're dealing with these days in trying to show people the truth of Christianity. Well, they've bought into all these other ideas that are running against it. So at best, what they end up doing is adding a little bit of Jesus on the side of a false Ooh, that's worldview. Good. <laughs> wow. That's true. Um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the, I heard this uh, from the philosopher, theologian Dallas Willard. He used to say one of the primary ways that Satan works is through ideas mm. and images. And he said, if he could set up an idea system and just let it roll on, he could basically take a nap from there. <laughs> you know, that's so good. we, we'd actually, Discuss. We we used to do that in a sub thirty. We talk about ideas and images. Images are the things that attach themselves to the ideas that become representations. They can be good or bad, true or false. So you can have like a good image would be the cross represents the essence of the Christian faith. Right. A false image would be something like when um, I would say the way the rainbow flag is used oh, at the LGBTQ okay. movement to represent that these are all different shades of good and normative sexual practice. Mm, so that's, that's the, the idea system behind sure. it is there is no design to sexuality. Whatever you feel is what's good. And the rainbow represents that. That's the image. And just in it, 
more innocuous way, just an image like the Nike swoosh. I was just an image that. that you can you yep. know, relate to and people recognize, easy to get behind. Yeah, and it it communicates a lot of things just by seeing it. Sure, exactly. So that and, and you know this, Stephen, because you work in this all the time. It's what we do in branding, right? Right, exactly. You try to like you spend you actually spend all this money with these guys yeah. to come in these gurus and they <laughs> they say, well, you know, what's your mission statement? What's your vision? They try to narrow right. it down and then they're like, what what picture? best uh encapsulates this idea and so i think we're very aware of that and but you could just remember that man that one of the primary ways that satan works is through ideas and images that we collect and they become strongholds in our mind if they are raised up against the knowledge of god Mm, that's good we used to do a little rap to help people Mm. remember it i don't know if you remember that babe That was my that was my hip hop debut oh though. My. I'd hit him up. I'd say remember. ideas and images, images and ideas. Mm. What ideas and images? I put that old Biggie that Biggie beat it. But that's kind of dated now though. So I don't know how you'd say how how would you do it in this modern like. So like, mean. I'm not. You know how they do the uh, they flip it so it's like you can't you can't say it like you used to, or you put the auto tune. Right. Yeah, true. Ideas. 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 anyways we can add the uh, auto-tune post but anyways ideas and images that's the way he works and then you know we see paul working against that and then you know what's what's interesting when you look throughout the book of acts you'll notice when paul goes into a city what he does you know it's it's part of a whole so he's going in the the power of the kingdom is accompanying his activity you're seeing miracles signs and wonders um, he's pointing to the scripture, but then he's also doing something else in these contexts. So read, read some of that. I think there's one in chapter 17 there, babe. Okay. Acts seventeen seventeen. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And then 18, four says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Yeah, so that was Paul's common practice, was to go into an area, you know, and declare the truth of the gospel, but also to use reason to persuade people that it was, in fact, true and that they could put their confidence in Jesus. You know, when he was talking to Jews or Gentile God-fearers, he would appeal to the Hebrew scriptures, but we also see him going to Athens on Mars Hill and speaking uh, to more like pagan Greeks in that situation. And there he would just, he would even quote their own poets, uh, you know, and talk about the fact that in God we live and move and have our being. That was a quotation of one of their pagan poets. And he would draw a bridge from that to the truth of the gospel. He would appeal to the statue that they had that said to the unknown God. And he said, well, here's here's God, and he has made himself known through through nature, general revelation, and through special revelation in his prophets, and finally in these last days through his son Jesus, and here's how you can know him as well. And uh, this was this was the common practice of Paul. We we see it uh, with Peter as well. This is kind of the the apologetics verse, First uh, Peter three fifteen, where Peter wrote. He said, "But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy." 
Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And where he said, always be prepared to make a defense, that word for defense in the Greek is actually apologia, from which we get our word apologetics. And it means like a court case defense, a reasoned uh, defense for the truth of a certain claim. So... That is very much a practice throughout Scripture, especially the New New Testament, where the apostles go out, they manifest the kingdom, the presence of God. Uh, We would see the accompaniment of miracles, signs, and wonders in their ministries, and they would build bridges to what the people already accepted as true and go from there. So this is what we're talking about with reason and argument. We're not talking about being argumentative, but we're talking about building a case. And, you know, we could, you could get real technical with this stuff. We don't want to do that today. You have different types of arguments, uh, inductive, deductive, abductive. We don't want to get into all that. But if you're interested, I would encourage you to uh, grab this On Guard book by William Lane Craig that we talked about, be in the show notes, um, as well as a book by J.P. Moreland called uh, Love God With All Your Mind loving God with all your mind, something like that. We'll link that one as well. But those are two great places to start if you want to get a little deeper into it. They have another great book they wrote together called, uh, I think it's Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview. That one you did not want to drop on your toe, but it'll be really helpful uh, to, to for you to understand these issues at a, at a deeper level. But let's just, for for the sake of discussion today, Um, we could talk about an argument in this sense. Like if you drew a little house on a piece of paper, you have the little walls and the roof. You could think of the roof as the conclusion to the argument and the walls as the premises. Premises are basically just the steps of an argument that lead to the conclusion. So quick example, we had some friends come in from out of the country. They had never been to Chick-fil-A. So they were like, man, we heard about this, you know, amazing restaurant they wanted to visit. And so they're like, can we go to Chick-fil-A? And this didn't have actually happen in this case, but imagine I said, well, Chick-fil-A is closed today. So I make this claim and let's imagine they want to press me on that and say, well, why do you, why do you say that? What, what do you mean it's closed? And I say, well, today is Sunday. That's premise one. Premise two is Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Therefore it follows that today Chick-fil-A is closed. So that was my conclusion. The first two premises are the walls, kind of the, the roof is built on. And <clears throat> the only way to really deny the conclusion in this case, which this is an example of a deductive argument, is to deny one or both of the premises. So let's imagine that the person responds and says, well, today is not Sunday. In fact, it's Saturday. And then I look on my phone and I, I realize that I've been duped. I, I got the day wrong. And then we all rejoice and we go eat Jesus chicken together. So um, in that case, my conclusion was wrong because the first premise was wrong. And that's just a little quick, fun example of a particular kind of argument. But whenever you're given a conclusion, like you're saying, you know, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's a that's a statement. And then if I was trying to convince someone of that that didn't believe it, I'm going to appeal to many different lines of evidence to do that. We often don't think about that process, but we do it all the time. Even when someone's preaching, you know, a, a message, typically they're not just going to string together a bunch of conclusions they're going to give you know they're going to make a point and they're going to appeal to the scripture to ground that point and they're given an argument for that so obviously this is going to be useful in um 
you know, strengthening believers, this has been one of the most helpful things for apologetics for me is to see that, you know, the claim that God exists, the claim that the Bible's historically reliable, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that there are actually really, really good reasons to believe these things are true. They can strengthen your faith, but also they they can be used as part of the process by which the Holy Spirit actually does bring people to faith. And there are examples all throughout history. One of the major examples being C.S. Lewis, who in his journey to Christ encountered many, many good arguments on the way. And even him and uh, Tolkien would go back and forth. And Tolkien was, I think, instrumental in pointing out kind of the historical reasons we can trust in the resurrection and the reliability of the New Testament. And that was one of the key pieces later on for C.S. Lewis, where he said he became the most reluctant convert to Christianity (laughs) uh, because he actually came to believe it was true. And I think early on, morality played a part, uh, the moral argument. So, uh, you know, we see where where occasionally these kind of classical apologetic arguments have actually been a part of people's journey coming to Christ. But more often, it helps us to see that Christianity is a viable option and is a plausibly true worldview that people should actually give serious consideration to. Um, I want to read a little bit here out of Dallas Willard's book, The Renovation of the Heart. He says, uh, he talks a little bit about thinking, and he says, what is thinking? It is the activity of searching out what must be true or cannot be true in the light of given facts or assumptions. It extends the information we have and enables us to see the quote-unquote larger picture. That's worldview there. To see it clearly and to see it wholly. And it undermines false or misleading ideas and images as well. It reveals their falseness to those who wish to know. It is a powerful gift of God to be used in the service of truth. He continues on down later. He said, and so we must apply our thinking to and with the word of God. We must thoughtfully take the word in, dwell upon it, ponder its meaning, explore its implications especially as it relates to our own lives. What are we to do in the light of the facts of the gospel and the revelation of God and of human destiny contained in the Bible? We must, quote, pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it, Hebrews 2.1. We must thoughtfully put it into practice. We must seek the Lord by devoting our powers of thinking to understanding the facts and information of the gospel. This is the primary way of focusing our mind on him, setting him before us. When we do so, we will be assisted by God's grace in ways far beyond anything we can understand on our own in the ideas and images that governed the life of Christ through his thought life will possess us. So that's that's the use of ideas and images in the positive way. That's spiritual transformation. If we try to bypass the mind in our spiritual formation, we do ourselves a great disservice as well as the world a disservice because we won't become who we were meant to become. Part of loving God with all of our minds is to really just do that, to think well, to think biblically. And that requires putting time in to understand arguments that lead us to these true conclusions. Um, in a book, the book I mentioned earlier, Loving God With Your Mind from J.P. Moreland, he talks about the loss of the Christian mind in American Christianity. And that's, that's just one particular 
I guess, instantiation of the loss of the American mind that, uh, what's his name? Uh, the loss of the American mind that Alan Bloom discusses in his book, the closing of the American mind. But JP discusses the emergence of anti-intellectualism in the faith. And I remember Vody Bauckham once saying, <laughs> he said, you know, there was a quote and I forget who he was quoting, but the, you know, the quote of mind is a terrible thing to waste. He said, but in some evangelical circles these days, the, the saying has become the mind is a terrible thing, period. And uh, J.P. quotes, uh, there's this Puritan kind of well-known guy named Cotton Mather he, he, who proclaimed that ignorance, quote, ignorance is the mother not of devotion but of heresy. And I think it's so true, and that's what we're seeing more and more people fall into all kinds of things like progressive Christianity or panentheism, all these other viewpoints because they're not biblically grounded. And that's what concerns me about these memes where we say, you know, we don't want to argue if we take that either in the wrong way or take it too far. I think we set ourselves up for this kind of failure and this kind of stunted growth that we are experiencing these days. And uh, so I just want to go back to this Dallas book, Renovation of the Heart, and read a couple more quotes here that I think are, are worth pointing out. And he says, uh, today we are apt to downplay or disregard the importance of good thinking to strong faith, and some disastrously even regard thinking as opposed to faith. They do not realize that in doing so they are not honoring God, but simply yielding to the deeply anti-intellectual currents of Western egalitarianism, rooted in turn in the romantic idealization of impulse and blind feeling found in David Hume, Jean Jacques Rousseau, and their 19th and 20th century followers. He said they do not realize that they are operating on the same satanic principle that produced the killing fields of Cambodia, where those with any sign of education, even the wearing of glasses, were killed on the spot or condemned to starvation and murderous labor. We too easily forget that it is great thinkers who have given direction to the people of Christ in their greatest moments. Paul. John, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and Wesley, to name a few. At the head of this list is Jesus Christ himself, who was and is the most powerful thinker the world has ever known. And then he goes on to quote Isaac Watts, who I love because he's actually a composer and a hymn writer. And this is what Watts said. He said, the great design of this noble science, and he's talking about logic here and reason, the great design of this noble science is to rescue our reasoning powers from their unhappy slavery in darkness, and thus, with all due submission and deference, it offers an humble assistance to divine revelation. Its chief business is to relieve the natural weakness of the mind by some better efforts of nature. It is to diffuse a light over the understanding in our inquiries after truth, and it renders its daily service to wisdom and virtue. And then Willard says this bluntly, to serve God well, we must think straight. And crooked thinking, unintentional or not, always favors evil. And, and when the crooked thinking gets elevated into group orthodoxy, whether religious or secular, there is always quite literally hell to pay. That is, 
Hell will take its portion as it has repeatedly done in the horrors of world history. And that's what we are up against right now. We are up against these world systems, these strongholds, these ideas and images raised up against the knowledge of God that are taking over our culture, trying to encroach on the in the church. And it is up to us disciples of Christ to not only think well ourselves, but help others to think well. And so thankfully he's given us these tools of redeemed reason. And you know, there are pitfalls here and we need to point them out. We, we, we know that as, as we see in the new Testament says, I think it was Paul that wrote in first Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so we understand that knowledge does have the tendency to bring about arrogance and pride. But as uh, Dr. Moreland often points out, the antidote isn't ignorance. The antidote isn't stupidity or not knowing. The antidote is humility and the fruits of the Spirit. Then we can have the love and the humility we need to carry the knowledge that's necessary to be free and to help others become free. And so we understand that that is one of the pitfalls, and we don't want to become argumentative people. We don't want to be unkind. We don't want to be always trying to beat people down and show off our knowledge. But uh, I think it was uh, Dallas, if I'm remembering correctly, this definition of apologetics he gave where he said it's the use of reason and submission to the Holy Spirit to help lift doubts from the honest inquirer. And I think it's a beautiful picture. It's a helping ministry. It's we we experience the redemption of reason because we know through the fall we have what theologians have called the the noetic effects of sin. That's when reason gets turned against or away from uh, the target of truth, and it gets turned toward trying to rationalize what we want to believe or misuse reason to prop up our own sinful habits and our sinful ways of doing life. But the redemption of reason is to recapture that it's made to help us get at truth and it's and to help us to discern truth from error. And so that's what we, we want to basically leave you guys with today is that we need to understand there's a, the proper role of reason in the life of faith, the proper role of the use of arguments, um, both for the believer in sanctification and for culture shaping and for helping others who don't know Christ yet to see that there are actually good reasons to believe that Christianity is not only helpful, but it is true. Well, thanks again for listening to the Free Mind Podcast. If you haven't yet, we encourage you to give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts, and you can send us questions. Freemind.fm is the website, and there's a form there. And you can follow us on social media at Freemind.fm, and you can send your questions there. Thanks again for listening. Oh, let's call the whole thing off.